Welcome back, all you crimeaholics. It's your host, Holly, and I am here today with another solved murder case for you. I don't have any kind of case updates or anything big to tell you guys today, so we are just going to get right to our episode. This case is one that you may have heard of because there was some recent developments within this case within the last few years that exonerated a man who spent 21 years behind bars for a murder that he did not not commit. So without further ado, let's jump in. This is the case of Angie Dodge. Angie Ray Dodge was born to her parents, Jack and Carol Dodge, on December 21, 1977, in Vancouver, Washington. Angie was the baby of the family and was well protected because she had three older brothers named Brent, Todd, and Roger. Her obituary on Legacy.com had a beautiful write-up about her and said that she had this infectious smile and vivacious personality. Angie was also the type of person who always had a hug waiting for everyone that she came in contact with. She was known for being a very loving and compassionate person who just had a heart of gold. She also had an in-depth understanding and loved every walk of life. Though Angie was born in Vancouver, Washington, that's not where she grew up. Her father was in the Navy, and with a parent in the military, that means moving a lot for military children. The family moved down to San Diego, California when Angie was young, and that is where she attended preschool. Finally, after 21 years in the Navy, Jack retired and took his family back to his hometown of Idaho Falls to finally settle down and plant some roots. Angie attended Idaho Falls High School, where she thrived at school and was extremely intelligent. Throughout her high school years, Angie tutored many young children in both English and math. She was also extremely goal-oriented with dreams of becoming an entrepreneur in the business world. After graduating high school in 1995, Angie went off to Idaho State University in Pocatello, which was just about a 50-minute drive from where she lived in Idaho Falls. During her freshman year, Angie stayed at her parents' house and would make the commute to Pocatello for classes. Angie loved to be in the outdoors and had a great enthusiasm for life, nature, and all of its beauty. Her favorite thing to do was to go spend some time in the outdoors with her family on camping trips, and they said that wherever there was water, Angie would find the water and start a water fight with her family. She just had such a vibrant personality that literally put smiles on everyone's faces that she was around. Angie's favorite holiday was Christmas, and with her birthday just being a few days before the holiday, they celebrated both the holiday and her birthday together with a family Christmas party. She absolutely loved big family gatherings, especially around Christmas when she could shower her loved ones with special necklaces that she handmade for each person that had ribbons and bells. 
She also made sure to have extra supplies at the ready in case anyone in the family brought a guest so that they wouldn't feel left out and they too could have one of her special necklaces. Angie had a lot of friends who recall great memories of spending time together in Angie's Oldsmobile that they all named the boat. Her friends recall Angie being this free spirit while driving the boat with one hand on the steering wheel and one foot out the window. Oftentimes, the boat would be covered with mud and had food wrappers that were literally inches deep on the floorboard. On the Angie Dodge website, it even said that her car looked like it had been in the demolition derby. So I can only imagine what this bad boy looked like, and I can only think about how I was with my very first car and what it looked like while I was cruising with my friends. Right before her death, Angie traded in her beloved Oldsmobile and bought herself a brand new Chevy. In the summer of 1996, 18-year-old Angie Dodge moved into her very first apartment and she was so excited for this brand new chapter of her life. Her apartment was located at 444 I Street in Idaho Falls and was located in a pretty nice area and it wasn't far from the Snake River. Angie had just closed out her first year of college and moved into her new apartment and was ready to begin her second year of college while living on her own. On June 12, 1996, Angie went over to her parents' house for a normal visit with them at around 9.15 p.m. While there, she chatted with her mom about how excited she was about living on her own and her new apartment, and she also expressed some of her worries about being on her own and the hardships that could potentially come with supporting herself. Her mother, Carol, recalls on the Angie Dodge website that she remembers while chatting with her daughter that she reached out to her to give her a hug, and Angie leaned her head on her shoulder, and the two of them rocked back and forth as if they were dancing. Carol whispered to her daughter that she will always be her baby and told her how much she loved her. Angie replied, I still whittle, huh, mommy? And Angie always said whittle instead of little, and it was just kind of her way of saying that she would always be Carol's baby. At around 10.20 p.m., Angie left to head back to her apartment. Before driving off, she blew her mom a kiss, and Carol said that she whispered, I love you, as she blew Angie a kiss back. This is a special moment that Carol is thankful for and one that she will forever cherish because this was the last time that she saw her daughter alive. After arriving back to her new apartment that Angie only had the opportunity to live in for just three weeks, something terrible happened. The following morning, Angie missed her shift at Beauty for All Seasons, which was a small beauty supply store in Idaho Falls, Idaho. After trying to call Angie with no answer or call back, two of her co-workers that she was very close with went over to her apartment around 11 a.m. to check on her. When they arrived, they found that Angie's front door was unlocked, so they let themselves in. After entering her apartment, they found 18-year-old Angie Dodge lying on the floor, partially clothed, and it appeared that she had been viciously attacked. One of the girls immediately called 911. When authorities arrived, they noted that there hadn't been any kind of sign of forced entry, so they came to the conclusion that Angie either left her door unlocked or she had opened it for her attacker. 
It was clear, however, that Angie was a fighter and that she had fought back against her attacker because it was clear that a struggle had taken place inside of her apartment. Angie had been raped, stabbed, and cut 14 times. Due to the violent nature of this attack, authorities questioned if this was a targeted attack instead of a random act of violence. Typically, in those targeted attacks, the victim knows the attacker, and the attacker is angry for whatever reason and makes the whole entire attack very personal. The scene to authorities felt personal due to how violent she had been attacked. It was also unclear whether the person who raped and murdered Angie had acted alone. One thing that authorities felt good about was the fact that there was semen left behind on Angie as well as a hair found that did not belong to her. So they felt that though this tragic murder took place, they would easily be able to track down the perpetrator and get Angie the justice she deserves and get this violent person off the streets. Usually on days that Angie was working, Carol would often call the beauty supply store to check on her daughter, see how she was doing, and just to chat about their day. So on this day, Thursday, June 13th, 1996, Carol called as she often did to chat on the phone with Angie. When another employee answered the phone, this was when Carol learned that Angie never showed up for work that day and that other employees had found her daughter dead in her apartment. I can imagine what an absolute shock that was to hear, and very unfortunate that the authorities weren't able to get to the Dodge family first to inform them of her murder. The Dodge family was absolutely heartbroken over the news, and they had no idea how this could have happened to their beloved daughter that they had just seen the night prior. As soon as they heard the news, Carol, Jack, and Angie's brothers all rushed to the police station to get answers on what happened to Angie. Immediately, the Idaho Falls Police Department began working to try and find who could have done this to Angie, and they began by collecting dozens of DNA samples from local men. As well as spending months upon months interviewing those within Angie's life to try and figure out if this was someone that she had known or had been close with that may have done this. Months went by and police weren't any closer to finding out who did this to Angie despite having a solid DNA sample and having it tested against over a hundred different samples. There was one individual who authorities were interested in, though, and his name was Benjamin Hobbs, and he was somewhat of a friend of Angie's. They took his DNA and compared it to the DNA found at the scene, and it did not match. On top of it not matching, he also had an alibi for the night that Angie was murdered. In January of 1997, Benjamin Hobbs was arrested for an attack on a woman that he committed at the end of 1996. He had raped a woman at knife point, which this really piqued the interest of police once more because of the fact that Angie was raped and then stabbed and cut with a knife. They felt that because this person was someone they were previously interested in and he committed a violent sexual assault with a weapon, they wanted to bring him in for more questioning once more. They also wanted to begin questioning all of Benjamin's friends as well to see if they could get the truth on how well he actually knew Angie. One of Benjamin's friends that they brought in was a 20-year-old man by the name of Christopher Tapp. 
Benjamin and Christopher were pretty good friends, and they ran in a group that referred to themselves as the River Rats in Idaho Falls because of the Snake River that passes through. They also were known to hang out near the Snake River, so that was another reason why they dubbed themselves the River Rats. But let me remind you that the Snake River was pretty close to where Angie was living on I Street in that apartment. So if these guys are hanging out near the Snake River and Angie lives close to there, it's probably a good idea that they were questioned. On January 7th, Christopher Tapp was brought in for his first of many interviews, and the authorities learned that he had been with Angie the night before she had been murdered at a local gathering. He told authorities that he had nothing to do with her rape or death, and he also told them that Benjamin Hobbs wasn't involved either. After interviewing Christopher, he was let go but would come back for more interviews in the days to come. After his second interview, his parents hired him an attorney because they clearly were very interested in their son, and they felt that it was best to have an attorney going forward. Before Christopher's third interview was set to begin, police showed up on his doorstep and arrested him and charged him with being an accessory to a felony. Because they believed that he was somehow involved with Angie's murder. Now, during his second interview, Christopher changed his story for the first time, and he said that Benjamin was responsible for Angie's murder and that he had only been Benjamin's alibi for that night, but his story would change plenty more after this. Shortly after his arrest, Christopher told a different version of events, and this time he said that he was present when Benjamin Hobbs murdered Angie. When asked why Benjamin killed Angie, Christopher said it was because Angie was trying to break up Benjamin's marriage. Not long after that interview, though, authorities received news that Benjamin Hobbs and Christopher Tapp were excluded from the DNA evidence found at the scene, meaning their DNA did not match the hair or the semen found inside Angie's apartment. So authorities then decided that one of their friends must have been somehow involved. A man by the name of Jeremy Sargis was brought up at some point during the investigation and questioning of Christopher. And this is when Christopher once more changed his story. This time he said that Benjamin and Jeremy had raped and killed Angie and that they had done so completely on their own with zero involvement from him. Jeremy's DNA was taken for testing and was expedited and after a week's wait, they learned that Jeremy Sargis also wasn't the person responsible either. Which is completely frustrating given the fact that this guy keeps pointing the finger at all of these people, including himself, yet none of their DNA is matching up with the forensic evidence that was left at the scene. On top of his DNA not matching, Jeremy's alibi also checked out. Once more, when questioned, Christopher told yet another story about the night Angie was murdered. This time, he said that he, Jeremy, and Benjamin had gone over to Angie's apartment. Christopher said that he held Angie down while Benjamin raped and killed her, and during all of this, Jeremy had left the apartment and one of Benjamin's friends showed up. 
And apparently this guy was named Mike, but Christopher said he didn't really know much about this guy. So it seems like every time Christopher talked, a different story would come out of his mouth, as well as more names of people who allegedly participated. So what was the true story? Was there any truth to any of this? And while I'm sure you all are frustrated by the constant change of stories, I'm sure you can imagine how the investigators had felt, but more importantly, how Angie's family felt, having no answer still on who killed their daughter. So in the eyes of investigators, they're looking at this as this guy, Christopher, at least had something to do with the murder, given the amount of times he's implicated himself. On January 30th, Christopher Tapp took his fifth polygraph test, and it was during this questioning, according to lawumich.edu, that the police told Christopher that he could possibly get a more lenient sentence if he had been in fear of his life after witnessing the attack on Angie. Eventually, he says that he cut Angie across the breast because Benjamin Hobbs threatened to kill him. It was said that the police officer told Christopher that he passed the test, but it was noted in the officer's report that Christopher was being deceptive about his participation in the crime. And I find this interesting. He's told that he passed and was being honest, yet the officer noted he was actually being deceptive in his notes. And honestly, with this information about the polygraph test and the fact that it almost seemed like Chris was being manipulated during his interview, when he was told he would get leniency if he said he was scared for his life, it seems like that's exactly what he did. He said he was scared for his life to get that leniency. So given all these different stories Christopher has told, paired with the deception on the test about being involved, it almost seems as if his confession are being coerced out of him. On February 3rd, 1997, so seven months after Angie Dodge was murdered, 21-year-old Christopher Tapp was charged with first-degree murder, rape, and use of a deadly weapon in the commission of a felony. Over a year after his arrest, Christopher Tapp's trial was set to begin on May 12, 1998. The trial consisted of mainly the various confession tapes of Christopher Tapp telling his many versions of events, and his defense attorney tried to argue that his confession was coerced and stated that Christopher had been interviewed for over 100 hours over the course of 23 days. At the beginning of the tapes, it was clear that investigators didn't suspect Christopher's involvement, but instead they were more interested in learning about Benjamin Hobbs and they wanted Christopher to implicate him. The police, however, told Christopher during these interviews that Benjamin had already placed Christopher at the crime scene, and they told him that they could help him if he cooperated and told them what happened, which was a complete lie. Christopher was also unaware that investigators can lie to them in these certain kinds of situations and that they do that to try and get the truth out of people. But instead, what sometimes happens is they get false confessions and people who are just trying to say whatever they need to say so they can stop having investigators breathing down their necks. 
So along with the hours of confession tapes they played during the trial, the prosecutors also put a woman by the name of Destiny Osborne on the stand. While on the stand, she told the jury about an evening she had spent at a party days after Angie's murder. She said while there, she had overheard Christopher and Benjamin talking about the crime. She did, however, acknowledge the fact that during this party, she had been high on drugs, but felt certain that she remembers hearing Benjamin say that he murdered Angie because she owed him money for methamphetamine. But her statement was contradicted by Christopher's statements to police because he had told them that he knew that Angie did not do drugs. So it's hard to truly trust what a woman who admittedly was high on drugs at this party says. Christopher Tapp did not take the stand in his defense, but another witness did, and they provided him with an alibi. The person claimed that on the night that Angie was murdered, Christopher had spent the night with a woman, and this was confirmed by Christopher's ex-girlfriend who actually caught Christopher and this woman together in bed. But the prosecutors came back with their own witness from Christopher's circle of friends who said that those dates were wrong and that he was found with another woman on a different date. After the closing arguments, the jury that consisted of nine women and three men were sent to deliberate. They came back on May 28, 1998 with a guilty verdict for all three charges. He was sentenced later that year to 30 years in prison for the murder conviction and 10 years for the rape conviction. Christopher fought his conviction with many appeals and each one was rejected. So after all of this was said and done, both authorities and Angie's family felt that Christopher took the fall for someone else. They knew that his DNA wasn't a match for any of the DNA found at the scene, so they were under the assumption that Christopher actually knew who did the crime, he just wouldn't say who it was. And because of this, they never fully closed Angie's case, and it was considered unsolved. In 2007, after fighting his conviction hard and claiming his confessions were coerced, the Idaho Innocence Project picked up Christopher Tapp's case. They also felt like his confession was coerced and requested more testing of the DNA to be conducted. In 2009, 13 years after Angie's murder, the DNA from the scene was finally put into CODIS's database. And for those that aren't familiar with what CODIS stands for, it stands for the Combined DNA Index System. CODIS is a national DNA information repository that is maintained by the FBI that allows state and local crime laboratories to store and compare DNA profiles from crime scene evidence to convicted offenders. So what this means for Angie's case is that if the person responsible had committed another crime and had their DNA sample entered into the system, it would pop up as a match. Unfortunately, though, there wasn't a match. Despite this setback with no match, Carol Dodge was ready to keep fighting for answers. According to a CBS News article, Carol sent a message to a man named Greg Hampikian, and I hope I am saying that right, but Greg is a well-known DNA expert. 
Greg and Carol teamed up together and put the pressure on authorities to use a new, at that time, but controversial search process called familial DNA. This looks for anyone who may be related to Angie's killer. Greg ran into a roadblock with this because Idaho didn't allow familial searches in their criminal database. So Greg made an even bigger controversial move and suggested that they did a familial search through a public database. In 2014, Greg and authorities used Ancestry.com to try and find a partial match to Angie's killer. And to their surprise, they finally got a hit. The hit brought them to a man named Michael Usry Jr., who was a New Orleans filmmaker and not just any kind of filmmaker, but a horror and murder filmmaker. One of Michael's films was called Murderabilia, which was about a fatal stabbing of a young female. But on top of that, if you guys remember, Christopher Tapp mentioned a man named Mike during interviews and said that he was involved. So a lot of things were looking promising, and they looked heavily into Michael. In December of 2014, Michael got a knock on the door from authorities, and they began questioning him. Now, they never once told Michael which murder case they were working on, but they did tell him that he was a suspect in a murder that took place in Idaho. And come to find out, he had been in Idaho not far from where Angie lived around the time that she was murdered. So more and more things were looking promising with this guy. After some questions, they had Michael go down to the local station where they swabbed him to collect his DNA and then they drove him back home. A month later, Michael got an email from the lead investigator stating that his DNA wasn't a match for their murder suspect, which Michael obviously didn't think that it would be, but the fact that his DNA partially matched had him completely in shock that someone who was related to him was involved. After this, Michael began working on a documentary about the entire ordeal and Angie's murder, and to his surprise, Carol Dodge was willing to be part of this documentary. After they began working together, Michael switched his idea for the documentary to focus and be about Carol's search for her daughter's killer. Now, I will say I'm not sure if Michael ever finished this documentary because I wasn't able to find anything about it online or anywhere where I could watch it. So I'm going to assume that it just was never completed. But I have to say that I love this bond that he built with Carol and ultimately helped her continue to fight for her daughter. The more that Carol learned about DNA, the more she started to believe that there was an innocent man sitting behind bars for the murder that he wasn't involved in. In May 2016, Christopher Tapp's attorney, which was led by John Thomas of Bonneville County Public Defender's Office, filed a motion for post-conviction relief. They had a stack of evidence that proved that Chris was never at the scene of the crime, and they asserted that Chris's confession was due to the police coercion and deception. On March 22, 2017, attorney John Thomas reached an agreement with the Bonneville County District Attorney, Danny Clark. Christopher's rape conviction was vacated, and the sentence for his murder conviction was reduced to time served. Chris was finally released from prison. However, he was still fighting to be completely exonerated. 
It would later come out that the woman who testified in court that she overheard Christopher and Benjamin talking said that she did so because she was threatened to be arrested on drug charges. After his release, the Idaho Falls Police, as well as the Idaho Innocence Project, worked tirelessly to try and find and get the real killer brought to justice. They dove deep into Michael Usry's family and came up with a list of six people who could have possibly been the killer. Instead of knocking on their doors, authorities decided to follow each one of these individuals and collect DNA samples from them without them knowing. They followed these guys around for days, slowly collecting things like cigarette butts, soda cans, plastic straws, and even discarded chewing tobacco. One by one, each came back as a negative match for Angie's killer. After all six of these people they had on their list wasn't a match, they started to wonder if someone was missing from Michael's family tree. What they found was that a woman who had been married to someone in Michael Usry's family had a baby with this man, but instead of giving him the last name, she gave this child a different last name after the divorce when the child was adopted by his stepfather, and this person's name was Brian Drips. After finally getting this name, this completely stopped investigators in their tracks because they had interviewed a man in the days after Angie's murder named Brian Drips, and this man had lived across the street from Angie's apartment. At the time of Angie's murder, Brian Drips was 31 years old. He was questioned by a young officer, and Brian had stated that he did not know what happened. And sadly, despite being a male that lived just across the street from Angie, police never asked him for his DNA. Then shortly after Angie's murder, Brian left the state of Idaho and moved to California. But when police finally tracked him down, he was living back in Idaho, about 300 miles away from Idaho Falls. Like they did to the other members of the family, they followed him to collect his DNA, and after picking up a discarded cigarette butt, his DNA was finally linked to the crime. It took 23 years for them to link Brian Drips to Angie's murder, when they had questioned him the day that Angie was found. What a complete and utter gut punch and a total letdown to know that this man was literally right under their noses and within their grasp right at the beginning. So investigators bring Brian in for questioning, and though he had a good game face on, his hands were shaking uncontrollably. After hours of denying being involved, investigators finally straight up told him, like, listen, we have your DNA that was at the crime scene. Detective Sage Albright said that you could just see the instant change in Brian's demeanor, and then eventually he finally admitted that he did in fact kill Angie Dodge and that he had acted alone, which means Christopher Tapp was not involved in any way, shape, or form. Brian admitted that he entered Angie's apartment with the intent to rape her at knife point. He said that during the sexual assault, he held the knife at her throat and it cut her. But Angie was nearly decapitated, and so for him to just say that it cut her absolutely could not be true. 
This was a vicious attack that went beyond just a cut by mistake while sexually assaulting her. Brian claimed that he was both high and drunk at the time of the assault, and he claims that he doesn't remember a lot of the attack, including when he slit her throat, and says it just happened. Two months after the arrest of Brian Drips in July of 2019, Christopher was back in court, but this time it was to be fully exonerated, and he finally was. This case was the world's first case where someone was exonerated because of genealogical DNA testing. After court, Christopher and Carol Dodge shared a sweet moment where she congratulated him and gave him a hug, which I find very sweet because when he was first found guilty, Carol had called Christopher a horrible beast. So for them to share this moment of what I would assume is forgiveness from Christopher and guilt and heartache and sorrow for Carol, it just seems incredibly touching. In February 2021, Brian Drips pleaded guilty to the murder and rape of Angie Dodge. Brian's attorney asked the judge for leniency since Brian was never arrested for any other crimes. The attorney said that Brian was extremely remorseful and had been under the influence of heavy drinking and drugs because his wife had left him. On June 8, 2021, Brian Drips was sentenced to 20 years to life due to a plea agreement, and he also is required to register as a sex offender upon release. However, it is believed that due to his poor health that Brian Drips won't even make it to his minimum sentence and that he will die in prison. CBS News reported on June 13, 2022, that officials in Idaho Falls agreed to pay $11.7 million to Christopher Tapp after he sued the city and the Idaho Police Department in October 2020. The city asked that the lawsuit be dropped, but instead they opted to settle it. One thing that I always admire is when a victim's family turns their tragedy into something positive. Carol Dodge and her son Brent started a nonprofit called Five for Hope with the mission to help raise money for underfunded cold case foundations and police departments. More information about Five for Hope is also on the Angie Dodge website, which of course I will have linked in the description of this episode. Angie Dodge was taken far too soon. At 18 years old, she had so much life ahead of her. The actions of Brian Drips not only tragically impacted Angie's family, but it did for Christopher Tapp too. For 21 years, Christopher sat behind bars for the brutal rape and murder of Angie Dodge, while Brian got to live his life to the fullest. Brian spent 23 years thinking he got away with murder, and thank God for new and improved technology with genealogical testing. We are seeing more and more cold cases solved because of genealogical testing, and I can only hope that even more will be solved in the years to come. Crimeaholics, that is all I have for the case of Angie Dodge. If you're not already a part of our private Facebook group, make sure you find it by searching Crimeaholics Podcast Discussion Group on Facebook. In there, we share all information and pictures pertaining to the cases that we cover, and we also encourage all of our members to share all things true crime. 
Be sure you also follow us on Instagram at crimeaholics.podcast. And if you would like more true crime content, you can follow me on TikTok at the same username of crimeaholics.podcast podcast. Lastly, if you wish to follow myself personally, you can find me on Instagram at Crimeaholly. Crimeaholics, that is all for this week's episode. Kinsey will be back Monday with another Missing Monday. Until then, have a safe weekend and as always, be aware and take care.